Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Today, we're going to be speaking to Josh Barron. Now, he is a co-founder, and I would say co-president, for lack of a better word, with Rob in Banyan Global. And Barron started his uh, career at Bain & Company, where he went on to found the Bridgespan Group, which is basically a Bain offshoot that becomes sort of the most influential group in terms of advising foundations and nonprofit organizations. And then from there, he went on to found Banyan Global with Rob, and they now primarily focus on advising family-owned businesses. And I must say, in many ways, they're probably the preeminent advisors in this space, not just in the scope of clients they have, but also in the level of thinking they've brought to the unique problems that family-owned businesses face. In this episode, I wanted to speak to Josh in particular because they've recently run a survey during COVID-19 to identify how family-owned businesses are responding to the challenges. It's one of the best episodes we've done. I've certainly found it very interesting. Um, I can see why many of my colleagues have recommended that I bring Josh onto the program. I've enjoyed it, and I'm sure we're going to see him in future episodes, as well as with his colleague, Rob. As always, I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did holding the conversation. Hi, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm excellent. So it's good to have you on the show because, you know, obviously I've spoken to your colleagues. I know some of your friends. I know a lot about you and your great business. So uh, thank you. And, uh, you know, we have a lot to talk about. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I've been following your work uh, for a long time because uh, you're friends with um, George Stock, who's a friend of Bill Madisoni, who's my friend, and he's mentioned you many times. So, you know, you've done a lot of amazing work in the field of understanding family businesses. And I think one of the most interesting things about reading your work, your book and the latest survey you've done, is that we take for granted that we know what a family business is. Mm. Because of the way the media portrays a family business, everyone thinks that we know exactly what goes into a family business. But when I was reading your work, especially the survey that you put out, one of the things that struck me very quickly is that it's only when you understand family businesses do you understand the concept of ownership in business. Yes. Because yes. when you go to MBA programs, ownership is not really treated as a pillar of your strategy. Because a CEO is not really an owner of anything, right? He's just there for five years if he's lucky. And right. then even if he gets fired today, right. he's probably going to get some good job in the future. So ownership is That's never right. a strategic tool. Yes. And when I read your Absolutely. book and I spoke to your colleague, I couldn't believe that, you know, this is such an important thing that we miss out. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. How do we use the concept of ownership? How do we make that into something we use to make decisions? Yeah, that's such an important point. And, um, you know, I, I so in addition to my day job with Banyan, I, I teach at Columbia Business yeah. School. And I agree. I mean, I think the the curriculum is really designed to prepare managers. You know, there's some content on uh, corporate governance uh, these days, but the vast majority is, is really teaching you how to be a good manager. And ownership, other than maybe a specialty class, like the ones I teach on family businesses yeah. or maybe one on private equity, there really isn't much discussion of what ownership means. I think that's true of the strategy field more broadly. We tend to yes. look at companies from as if the, the CEO is the top of the pyramid. And that is true in a publicly traded company where you have a board, but oftentimes the CEO is also the board chair or, or isn't really able to exercise real influence. And the owners are people who trade shares on apps. They, yes. Their main goal is to buy low and sell high. You'll see occasional activist shareholders, but what they ask for is actually relatively minor. Owners aren't really very present. And, and a family business, you know, especially a private business, but even one that's publicly traded, family controlled, is just so totally different. Instead of the owners being investors, they're actually invested. Like they care about that business. And instead of it being thousands of anonymous people who may own 
hundreds of companies through mutual funds. They actually care a lot about this specific company, right? So it's, it's a totally different way of, of owning a business, and it has a huge impact on the ability of a company to, to create strategy. And there's all kinds of things that I think that, that private ownership and, and more broadly and family ownership in particular um, brings an ability to compete in a very different kind of way than other companies. Well, thinking about what you said, which is very well put, I'm just thinking about how the corporate world now responds to trying to develop a sense of ownership in managers, senior managers. Yeah. We have yeah. clawbacks of salaries, right? I mean, that's yeah. really a tool to make people act like their owners, right? I think there's been, there's been um, you know, ever since the public company really came into prominence yeah. in the, sort of like the first few decades of the last century, there's been this effort to try to make managers act in the best interests of owners. Uh, that what we call what we call in academics the yes. principal age problem, right? And overall, I think it's been largely unsuccessful. The, you Absolutely. know, with, and the skyrocketing pay, the corporate scandals. These are all examples of this difficulty of making managers act in the best interests of owners. And I think what we found pretty consistently is just giving management teams a ownership position in stock doesn't really change the dynamics yes. because then you're, they're just incentivized to do what makes the stock price go higher. Yes. And what makes the stock price go higher is not necessarily what's the best thing for the business over any extended period of time. So it doesn't, it, it's an attempt to solve the problem, but I don't think it really in some ways exacerbates it because it puts this huge focus of the companies to do whatever meets Wall Street expectations. And Wall Street expectations are not always the same thing as good long-term sustainable business practices. Yes, and if you think about it, it's almost a perverse kind of solution, right? If you give a CEO or executive vice president a large enough remuneration package, they yep. really just want to hit their target, get the payout, and then they're gone, right? Whatever, you know, that's the thing about incentives, right? Is that they incentivize a certain kind of behavior. And, yes, and, um, and, 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 and sometimes, you know, they're, they're, they do, and you can't really blame the executive. They're doing exactly what they've been said to do, as you said, most of those people are there for three to five years yeah. and they're trying to sort of maximize the amount that they're, they're getting over that time period. And the way to do that when there are stock options is to get the stock price as high as you can, whether those are through, you know, things that support the business or, or other things. And uh, so the most ethical version of this is that they take actions that might be in the short term interest, but not long term interest. And then, of course, we see the more unethical things like accounting gimmicks and other things that will accelerate a bump up the stock price, but actually harming the company. Yeah. So we talked about incentives that incentivize the wrong behavior. Right. But I was also thinking about the fact that, you know, when you work in a family business and you leave the office at 5 p.m., you don't really leave the office, right? You go to speak to your wife who spoke to your brother's wife and any decision you make, you know, is going to have a ripple effect across everyone you know. It's not you can't just leave. You, you can't really turn off, yes. right? Do you feel that plays a role in encouraging family business members to make the right decisions? The short answer is I think it does. It definitely affects behavior. Whether it always has them to make the right decisions in part depends on what you think of as right and what you think of as not right. Yes. For, so, for example, like, you know, I think of this one family business that we that we worked with that was a construction company, but they had a real estate division. And, yeah. and the real estate division just wasn't wasn't working. It wasn't profitable. They weren't able to create any kind of real advantage in it. And the, in a, in a, let's say, a, in a non-family, I meant to use the word normal, but let's say a non-family yeah. business, you would just shut it down. Of course, in this yeah. case, the, the person running it was the brother-in-law of the CEO, yeah. right? So in this case, he knows that, okay, if I shut down this business, my brother-in-law is not very happy, and therefore my sister, who is also a shareholder of the business, is really unhappy, which makes the next you know, family <laughs> gathering really uncomfortable. Yeah. Which, you know what I mean? Like, so these things are, it's, it's very, it's a system is the way we talk about it. These things are all interconnected. You can't affect, you can't act in one area without affecting all these other things. So yes, I think it can certainly make people be thoughtful about the long term in a positive way because you hear people talk about, I'm doing this not for myself, Yes. Um, but for the next generation, like I, you know, I'm invested. These are these are like real people. These are my children. These are my nieces and nephews or grandchildren. Like they're they're actually real people that you're that you're envisioning when you make these kinds of decisions and can make you, 
you know, can it really encourage the kinds of trade-offs that help to create long-term success stories. At the same time, it can also lead to some of these, you know, other kinds of decisions yes. that are much more complicated than they would be in a non-family company. Yeah, you can never like um, tell your wife, hey, let's get away from it all and go away for Christmas and spend time with the family and forget about business because it's going to come up, right? But let's switch gears a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, right? Let's talk about sure. some of the generational shifts happening in family-owned businesses, right? So for example, um, we have a client um, that we are working with. We are partnering with them in Southeast Asia. And what's happening there is the youngest son uh, went to the United States, did his MBA, highly educated, sure. comes back to Southeast Asia, and he wants to take the family business in a new direction. Okay. He wants them to liquidate their property holdings and move heavily into a completely unrelated sector. They're certainly... That story is certainly is not unique today. Sure. What are you seeing happening in family-owned businesses in terms of managing that tension? Yeah, well, certainly it's, um, you know, every, every generation, every, you know, there's always going to be an evolving sense yes. as to what's the right thing to do for the business. Um, and actually, so in my class, you know, I teach a lot of MBAs. Mm -hmm. So I actually get to speak to a lot of students yes. who are at this very moment of having spent the last two years developing all these great ideas about what they what they think the company should do, um, and then having to go back home and trying to figure yes. out how to get them you know how to get them accepted. And, yeah. and so maybe I'll share a couple pieces of advice that, great, I, yes. that I would give to them. Um, one piece of advice is that whenever you're communicating something, especially something significant, it's really important to put yourself in the position of the receiver mm. as opposed to the position of the communicator. And by that, I mean, so people process information in different ways. Some people, in thinking about like the current generation, those who are currently in those leadership roles, they might be people that um, you know, like to read things. They might be people that like to go for a walk and have a conversation. It might be that you could have like, those kinds of conversations in a boardroom. Um, it might be that if you raise an issue like that in a business meeting, you'll you'll make, you'll put them on the immediate defensive because they'll then have to justify yeah. why they've not been doing that thing for the last ten years That's or fifteen. True. Right. So you want to really be thoughtful about how is this person going to best receive this message um, that I want to provide to them. So that's sort of one piece of advice is really sort of un like put yourself in their shoes and say how are they going to be most understanding, most willing, most open to listening to something. Let me communicate it that way. Maybe instead of going guns ablazing, you know, here's how we should recreate mm -hmm. our entire business. Maybe take them to a, you know, have them listen to a podcast yeah. or take them to a conference where they're talking about the evolution of business and why this is a move that makes sense. However they learn, you should communicate. So that's one, one point. The second is this idea of grafting, you know, which is basically one of the things that I've found to be most helpful in sort of spreading ideas is that instead of treating something as a brand new concept that you've created out of out of nothing um, and that you're asking someone to accept something completely revolutionary it's much better to try to put it in a broader frame of being evolutionary but this is another version of the things that we've already done in the past and one of the reasons why you do that is because people whenever you sort of say we need to make this dramatic turn mm -hmm. immediately again puts people on the defensive and saying you know, why have we, well, you know, you're stupid. You, the way you've been running this business is, is suboptimal, <laughs> yes. it's not right, and I've got this great big idea. So instead of saying, you know, we need to just completely shift gears on this business, you might say instead, you know, trace back the history of the company, right? So over the last, you know, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, this business has continually evolved. We started here in this one place, right? And then evolved and moved and moved and moved. It's always moving, it's always in motion, it's never been static. So. This is the next evolution, I think, of our company, is not to keep doing the things we've been doing the same way, but to sort of put it in this direction. And it, by the way, it involves the exact same principles. We've always been innovative. We've always been willing to take risks. We've always been ahead of the market. And this is just the next in a series of versions that we've always done this way. And I've just found when you frame things in that way, mm -hmm you can just sort of take a bit of the edge off and hopefully get into what you really want, is it, which is a real dialogue on those strategic options. Not just good advice for families, it also sounds like good relationship advice, Josh, if you frame any change as That's an evolution. That's one of the things actually I, I love about working with family businesses is I find that so many of the things that are, are helpful in sort of that lens are helpful at home 
too. And um, in my more disciplined moments, I, I apply things uh, that I've learned and, and sort of by trying to advise family businesses in my own life, I wish I was I wish I was better, but uh, but yes, absolutely. I think it's the same kind of thing that can be can just take really kind of open up a better, broader, more open-minded conversation um, than sort of trying to frame it as you know X versus Y about you know my idea versus your idea about the future versus the past. Those kinds of things just I think end up going nowhere. So how do you frame them in a more constructive way? Yeah, and I can imagine with families where they've got you know decades of baggage. Any little sure. thing can set you off, right? It's not as if you're meeting for the first time or know each other professionally. You've got all kinds of personal things bubbling under the surface there. Let's switch That's gears right. and talk a little bit about COVID-19, right? So sure. let's talk about the impact because when I first knew we were going to talk about COVID-19 and so on, I was thinking, but family-owned businesses should not intuitively to me be worse off than other companies because they tend to have very conservative, strong balance sheets. Yes. But then when I read the results, I mean, quite a few, a large percentage have been negatively impacted. So let's talk us through what those findings are. Is it negatively impacted or they are doing worse off or they're doing better off? What does negative mean here? Well, look, I think first of all, let's let's make sure that well, when we say neg- negatively affected, as uh, as about you know two thirds of companies were when we did we did a round of survey results. Yeah. Just as the pandemic was shape taking form back in the April May timeframe, we ran the same similar survey November December, and that number you know was closer to ninety percent in the first go round, closer to two thirds in the second go round. We're only talking about family businesses yes. in the survey. Did not get a comparison group. So I actually. I don't think family businesses are actually doing worse than other companies. Yeah, in fact, you know, and it's hard to actually get data on this. I think they're they're doing better, at least you know from our sense. And actually, you know, I, I think one of the things we found is that they're very optimistic about the future, yes. like as as a whole. So I think that you know these. And you mentioned George Stocks. Yeah. You know, George, George and, and a few of his other colleagues did this really fantastic research about comparing family and non-family mm-hmm. businesses across the business cycle. And what they found is that you know, when, when times are really great, family businesses don't do as well yeah. because they're not as leveraged, they're not as aggressive growing, they're not hiring as much and all those kinds of things. When the economy is in a downturn, they do better. And over the course of a li- business cycle of ups and downs, they do better when you have that sort of less, you know, less positive yes. performance and more positive performance. So, Pandemics, crises, these kinds of things, to me, are tailor-made for the kinds of things that family businesses are able to do and able to adapt better. And I think they're going to be, you know, I think have done, you know, comparatively well. And I think we'll do comparatively better as we emerge from this time, hopefully at some point this year. This this finding is quite interesting. So let's unpack that a little bit, right? Sure. So we're saying that the research shows actually that um, in boom times, family businesses for whatever reason, maybe they're very conservative and so on, they don't, they're not as aggressive in growing with that market. Yes, because it's their money. But when things contract for whatever reason, uh, they maybe have more cash on hand. Let's talk to why are they able to respond better during a downturn? What are the characteristics that allow them to do that? There are a few things that I think position family businesses to do better in downtimes. One is family businesses are, are tend to have more loyal employees and better mm-hmm. employee engagement, which I think helps when you're going through a time when it was very stressful and straining um, to have you know to have that kind of level of, of of participation and involvement and commitment to the company. I think that's one thing that helps. Um, I think another is the the long term perspective. So that family businesses don't overreact uh, yes. to this. I was actually talking to a family business leader a few months ago, and he said they're in a business that's been really they're they're travel adjacent in the airline industry, mm-hmm. and they basically they're they've been really affected, and they've had to let go of people they don't want to. But basically, said the leader said that all their competitors are almost bragging. The public company competitors are bragging about how many people they've laid off because it's a way of showing commitment and seriousness about cost control. And they say, that's not at all how we look at this thing. You know, we look at this as, you know, we did everything we could. We did furloughs. We did job sharing. We did, you know, we had lower profits. We did everything we could to avoid laying off people. And so when the, when the economy comes back, we're going to be in a better position to be successful. Um, but I think because family businesses, you know, are able to have that longer term orientation and perspective, 
um, because they're, they have less debt, so therefore less of an urgency to pay things off. Mm -hmm. They're not responding to external market pressure, so they can literally choose to make less money, and as many have and yes. did um, over, over the course of the year. They can choose to modulate those kinds of how do we define success metrics. And then lastly, I think family businesses are able to make um, big decisions quickly, uh, right? So family businesses aren't always fast in making all kinds of decisions. Yes. Sometimes they're slower. But when there is a commitment to do something, and whether that something is, you know, as some families' businesses that we saw, you know, uh, you know, turned um, manufacturing lines into PPE production facilities, mm -hmm. or, you know, they made major strategic changes or moves in response to the pandemic, they're able to act very fast. And that's a big, you know, that pace and speed of, of reaction, major changes, is a huge advantage when the world is evolving and shifting so quickly. That's very interesting. So let's paraphrase this for the audience, right? Because I think there's some very sure. important insights here. One, in boom times, they're not playing at the edge. They've not, you know, go yes. all in and bet the entire farm and, the, you know, they have enough gunpowder stored away. So that's exactly. the first thing, right? The second yes. thing is that when things are bad, they have institutional memory of previous bad times. It's not new for them. Sure do. Yes. So it's not as if the world has fallen off. They've been here before. Even if that particular owner hasn't been there before, his father or mother has been there before, and they can draw on that. Is, is that a fair thing to say? Absolutely. I think it's a great point. There's a level, and you hear this when you talk to the leaders. They're like, yeah, I mean, this is bad, but remember the crisis of 87? Or, yeah. you know, remember when this, especially in non-U.S. countries that have had yeah. more political or economic instability, oh, you should have seen this or that, yeah. right? So there's... There's almost like a, a confidence that you get only by having been through crises yes. and, re and knowing that you're going to get to the other side. And I think you're entirely right. That's that sort of built into the, the family culture and ethos to say, this too shall pass. We will make it through. It's going to be tough. We're going to have to make some tough choices and, and roll up the sleeves and all that kind of stuff. But, but we'll make it to the other side. So in a manner of speaking, the institutional memory of family business is a lot stronger than a you know, publicly listed company, whereby a lot of the people who've been through these things have left and so on, right? There's another point here, um, which you alluded to, and it's a good, very good point. I think it's an important insight. Public companies and public leaders, sometimes they exaggerate a problem because it gives them cover to do things they don't want to do, but they Ooh. have to do. Sure. But with a family business, it's their business. They don't need the cover, right? They can just act as they want to act. Is, is that also a fair thing you see happening? If you own a company, you get to make the rules, and so you can break the rules, right? I mean, yes. whenever, you, whenever you want. And that's both the, I think, the hidden strength as well as the um, bullet, fully explored weakness of that. We tend to talk about the bad part of that, yeah. right? We talk about business conflicts, yes. the ways in which these, these owners destroy these perfectly good companies. And there are some examples of that. They make yes. for great um, you know, dramas, both yes. – both, uh, both nonfiction dramas and then fictional dramas yes. like Succession, Dynasty, Dallas, all those kinds yeah. of things. So that's the fully discussed, explored perception about the way in which family businesses can break the rules to break their businesses. But at the same time, they can also break the rules to save their businesses, yes. right? And they don't have to answer to anyone else about it as long as that ownership group is aligned and saying, we're willing to do X, Y, and Z, then it happens. There's no, then you don't have to explain it to anyone. You just get to go and do it. In your work and your you know, interaction with clients, do you find that some uh, founders intentionally want to have a family business? Or is it something that they kind of just find themselves migrating into due to decisions outside their control? It's such a fascinating question. I think you see a bit of both. You see yeah. some that really see this as something that they want to create a legacy um, that will continue on. And oftentimes there's a very deliberate choice to say, you know, I could sell this business, I could take it public, I could, you know, whatever. If I do that, then the company, the business will lose what's made it special. It will, it will result in, you know, employees not having the kinds of jobs, it will lose in community and customers not having what the business has to offer. So some basically look at it and either say, I want a family business because I want I want my family to have you know this opportunity, or I want a family business because I want to preserve what makes this company I've created special, and therefore the only place to kind of keep it going in that way is by passing it down to the family as opposed to selling it. So there's that version. There's also then just the accidental version of yeah. someone 
passes away before yes. they've even had a chance to think about these issues or they've been so focused on the business that they, they their lawyer has made them do some estate planning that passes it down to the business but they may even not really be aware of it sometimes you'll see they've actually they don't even own the business anymore but no one will tell them that because they're yes. still the founder and they're still the you know the yeah. patriarch matriarch and and those kinds of things so i think there is both like this this purposeful creative family business and then there's like the accidental family business it just happens for uh, for a wide variety of reasons so shifting back to COVID, right yeah so you've got all these opportunities everything's an opportunity i think family businesses see that but what advice would you give these businesses as they think through their next moves for the next year? How would you coach them to do that? I hope that we're entering a different stage of this virus. Yes. I mean, what's, what's certainly as we're, as we're talking here in, in March and, um, you know, I think especially in the U.S. but around the world facing this race between the variants and the vaccines yeah. and we'll kind of one, see which one wins or if not, you know, the we might be in for another sort of stage and, and evolution of this. I actually, I think, let's just assume that we're, we're headed our way out of it sometime in the next three to six months and that the, you know, the, all the forecasts are suggesting a pretty significant period of, of growth and recovery and those kinds of things. You know, I, I think as, with, as in any period um, of a family business, um, it's really important to sort of make sure that you continue to, to, play, to play to your strengths. And I would really encourage family businesses to say, how have we managed through and navigated this crisis? How are we in a better position or in some places maybe a worse position than our peers? And how can we use this as an opportunity to kind of take the next leap and step forward? And I think this time of crisis, you know, this pandemic, like most crises, has been a really incredible moment of innovation. And I've seen that a lot with the family mm -hmm. businesses that we interact with, where they've been, you know, talking about digitalization or direct to consumer e-commerce, mm -hmm. uh, technology, all these things they've been talking about, but haven't really necessarily been doing them and have had to do them. And so this is a moment, I think, to sort of, first of all, to figure out how can you build on all these great, you know, innovations that you've had to, to manage over this yeah. period. And secondly, you might've been through a tough time but your competitors might have been through an even tougher time. They've had to lay off more people. Mm -hmm. They've had to cut deeper. How can you use this as an opportunity to actually gain share? And that was one of the things that we found really heartening in the survey results is that a significant chunk of the people that responded see this is going to be a, a window for them to actually to gain share, to come out of this ultimately ahead of where they started. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to make sure that as the economy gets back to normal, um, that you're actually taking as, as best advantage of those opportunities as you can. And in terms of acting on these opportunities, is it because they've built this fortress balance sheet with cash sitting there, or is it because they have access to cash? What's funding this? Well, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's a couple things. You know, one is, is tend to have stronger balance sheets. Mm -hmm. um, family businesses tend to have, you know, it's sort of like that, I think they call it like the banker's paradox. That every, they're will, everyone's willing to lend you money when you yeah. don't need it. Yes. And not willing to when you when, <laughs> when you really do. Yeah. So there is a, certainly a situation in which family businesses have uh, better access to cash, to liquidity, to actually go and make purchases. And, and if you actually study, you know, successful family businesses, they tend to buy when valuations are much lower, and they they're one of the few people with cash mm -hmm. than when they're very high when everyone's got it. But that may actually turn around, right? Right. I mean, that's something that's been true for the last six to nine months, maybe for the next three to six months. But I think that advantage will probably start to to dissipate um, as the credit markets open up, as private equity firms, you know, start to you know get back and get back into more action, as as banks start to be willing to lend. That is probably that sort of just pure balance sheet advantage is probably going to uh, is probably going to dissipate a bit. So I think that you know the reasons why they're able family businesses are going are going to be well positioned. I think are I'd point to um, a couple reasons. One, as I said, is that they haven't had to cut back as much. And so they should be better able to get that engine fully going again faster than some of the other companies that, that have had to do that. And the second thing is because because of that ability to think long term and make long term investments, um, there's actually an ability to kind of use this as to as a platform to sort of make these longer term bets, longer term plays, not be quite so caught up into this quarterly cycle of, mm -hmm. of meeting performance expectations. And that gives a real advantage to being able to sort of use this, not as a way just to have a better 2021, but how do you really position yourself to have like a, a roaring 20s for, uh, you know, as, as a business?
And I'm guessing one of the big topics I'm, I think your clients would want to talk about is, you know, what would they do differently if inflation goes up, right? What does it do to your cash position? How do you manage your cash and so on? But we've spoken a lot about cash. Let's change things a little bit here and come back to the sure. survey. The survey findings are interesting, but do you find that there are certain themes that are more concentrated in different parts of the world or different sectors? Well, let's leave aside travel, tourism, which we are hit severely. And those sure. are you know, unusual circumstances. Let's talk about the other sectors and other parts of the world. Are we seeing similar themes? Are we seeing some family businesses in some parts of the world being more entrepreneurial? Like, for example, I'm guessing if you're a family Ooh. business in Indonesia, which is used to turmoil, this shouldn't be such a yeah. big deal for you. So, so what, what do you right. notice are, are the geographic themes that you're picking up? Yeah, and, and this is one that I think has been so variable depending on how each country has handled this and the impact that it's had, you know, because, you know, you certainly see a lot of the countries in, in Asia, um, in Africa, um, have been less affected. Um, the sort of some of the responses have, have had to be less dramatic, like India, very dramatic yeah. at the start, but much more opened up. China, very much, you know, very hard, heavy handed at the beginning. Um, but life is, is much closer to back to normal. Yeah. Um, I was talking to a, a family in the Philippines. You know, they've been, you know, very careful. Um, you know, the rules have been pretty stringent. Uh, things seem to be kind of coming back. Uh, Europe is going kind of the other way yes. right right this moment. Part it's hard to answer this question in part because I think it really is has been and will continue to vary depending on the environment that you're in. Some yes. businesses are in a back normal environment, some are in a back to back to lockdown environment. Yes. One of the things I think that we're seeing that's been pretty consistent is that it's created an opportunity for that. We talked earlier about the next generation mm -hmm. to really kind of step up and provide a lot of leadership because this has been a time when Technology has become more important to business survival for most businesses. Um, putting aside, like you know, the businesses that always yes, rely on sure. it, but all businesses have had to figure it out. Um, I think it's been a, a really good time for the next generation to kind of step in and to be able to provide some new ideas, insights, and perspectives. And that's actually been pretty common in the family businesses um, that I've seen across the world. And have you seen a big push or embrace of digitization with family-owned businesses as a result of COVID? I think so. And sort of I would think about it as using digital technology in a, a few different ways. One is the actual, you know, delivery of, of you know, products and services and, you know, having an e-commerce yes. strategy. I've talked to a number of family businesses that said we've been playing at this for years, but this pandemic forced us to become serious about it because otherwise our business wouldn't survive. And so going more, you know, direct to consumer as opposed to relying on retail outlets and using technology to do that. A lot of innovation, I think, in that period. The other thing that where I've seen a ton of innovation is in within the family communication aspect of it. Um, it used to be that if you wanted to have a family gathering, you had to actually gather the family. And, yeah. and sometimes for some families that was easy. They have dinner every Sunday or lunch every Sunday, and that's kind of a, a very constant forum. For many families that have spread out globally or nationally, it's always been really hard to get everyone together. Maybe you could do it once a year, sometimes once every two years. With this technology, now that everyone has had to get on to platforms like yeah. Zoom, Skype, or whatever, now that everyone's ha everyone, almost without exception, has had to get comfortable with that, it opens up a whole new way of having conversations that I think and certainly hope will outlast the pandemic, where instead of having to have these once-a-year gatherings, you can actually have a much more frequent interaction and for people to know what's going on, to share their perspectives, all the kinds of things that you can use technology for on a much more regular basis. So, uh, you know, I've definitely seen a step change in those and something that I think, as I said, I hope actually will, will outlast this current period. Well, that's a very interesting insight. It's actually very counterintuitive if you think about it, because companies, traditional companies, they had everyone in one building generally. So they were always together and COVID forced them apart. So it caused a disruption. Yes. Yeah. But what you're saying is family businesses were different because families live in different cities and different countries or different parts of the same city. They were never yeah. really together to begin with, but because they've embraced new technology to communicate, it's actually in some cases brought them closer together. Yeah, in some cases. Look, sure. there, are, yes. there are plenty of families that they all, as I said, they, they see each other every day and this has yeah. been a huge disruption. For those, those relationships, will that will naturally find its back to the old equilibrium, right? I mean, those families that were meeting every day, every week, they'll do that again. Sure. But the families that were not doing that, that were sort of more 
uh, you know, much more distant, they are mm -hmm. distant geographically and therefore also distant in a relationship sense, this moment offers an opportunity to actually to fill that gap. And I think there are a lot of lessons learned that, that people will carry over. So there's a stereotype that it's the younger generation who are who have been and will be the ones leading the sort of e-commerce automation trend. Is that what you're seeing? Is, is it the younger generation driving it or is that just a stereotype? Um, I feel like with most stereotypes, it's both a, an unhelpful exaggeration yeah. and has a kernel of truth to it. Um, mm -hmm. So look, I think there are plenty of progressive leaders that have been in business for a long time. And like I said, have, have you know, they wouldn't have been in that position unless they had always embraced change yeah. and technology and innovation. And this is just another form of innovation and we should treat it like that. Um, so I think there's certainly not to make sort of an over, you know, an over generalization. At the same time, I think it's like anything. I just look at my kids and the way that even, you know, them growing up, you know, they're about to yes. turn nine. They just grown up with technology in a way that it's just intuitive and natural for them, yes. as opposed to even I, like I have to kind of figure it out. It's not yeah. like my brain's not wired that way. So I do think that there's a level of comfort with technology in general, with, you know, just feeling like, okay, if we move our business online, as opposed to, you know, being able to, you know, drop, drop products off at a warehouse and, you know, and, and, and put it in a store, I buy that way. So I'm more comfortable selling that way. Right. So I think they're, and they're more knowledgeable about the different aspects of it, just a level, great level of comfort. So I think there's something there that mm -hmm. the, the younger you are, the more comfortable you are that technology actually is, you know, these kinds of technologies, digital technologies are, are really helpful addendum and a way to improve business practices, a little less fear around it, which probably makes more of an ability to, to leverage it more effectively. So let's talk about some of the things family-owned businesses tend to be good at, because I think there are lessons we can extract for other industries. Um, sure. Family-owned businesses, by and large, the ones I know, they tend to have the business as part of their identity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very hard for them to separate it. And in fact, they don't want to separate it. Attached to that, the community also tends to be part of their identity because they play, in many cases, such a large role in stabilizing that community. Yes. What have you seen uh, some of the things they're doing well when they are forced to retrench and have this you know, negative effect on the community? How are they doing it differently? from established companies are they doing anything different because you know if the guy has lived there for 50 years and he knows the parents of the people he's retrenching it's it's very different right how do they do this yeah it's um so first of all i think it is very there is a very different mm -hmm. approach when your name's on the door literally yeah. or figuratively you know you're gonna think about some of these issues in, in sort of a different way one thing that I see is I've been in a number of conversations about, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's uh, environmental sustainability or diversity and inclusion, all these social issues of the day. We tend to think of these as, as a trade-off between we either, we either need to really commit to environmental sustainability or living wages or good benefits and, or, and profitability. And there's sort of like a pick one or the other kind of way. It's either a business to run as a business or it's a business to run as like a social welfare. Yes engine right mm -hmm. because the orientation is different family businesses don't really see those things as trade-offs they're trade-offs in the short term right but they're not necessarily trade-offs in the long term yes. um, i'm thinking of like one family that i work with and that's in, a, in the heavy manufacturing industry they're pumping a lot of money into modernization of their plan mm -hmm. which will in the short term is going to have a significantly negative effect on profitability and so on because they're putting a lot of money back into the business on cash flow but over the long term is going to both improve their profitability, their mm -hmm. competitive position, because their costs will go down, and it will improve their environmental footprint because it's more efficient, less emissions. And you just see lots of examples of things like that where we just need to get, I think family businesses are a, much more able to get out of this short-term trade-off mindset um, and into this, you know, you can have both if you change your time horizon. So that's yes. one thing I think that they are able to do differently. And I think that you know there is a lesson there for other companies if they're able to sort of bring that mindset and show mm -hmm. some examples of how, of how things can actually create both. I think the other thing is that, you know, how do they manage these things? Well, first of all, they're just more sensitive to it. You know, it, it, things that, you know, when we were talking about reductions in staff and payroll, um, these aren't sort of abstract numbers on a page. Like these are actual people. Yes. Um, and there's just sort of a sense of, well, you know, do we have to do that? Is there another way? It sort of, I've seen it just, it sort of creates this sort of cycle of, of innovation and other ways of, of, like I said, 
do we have to lay everyone off or should we consider you know doing job shares or furloughs or kind of other things like that and if we lay people off let's make sure that we're doing it in a way um, that is humane because you know you are you know actually was talking to a family you know a family business that's a, a big as you described they're mm -hmm. a huge employer in a particular community and so, you know, the family members actually are saying, make sure you make sure we give us a heads up when you have to lay people off, because we will literally run into these people in the grocery mm -hmm. store. And we want to know that, first of all, you know, that first of all, we want to know, like, give us a heads up so that we can be prepared for those conversations. But also make sure that we're doing it in the right way, even if it costs us some money here mm -hmm. and there. Um, we want to be able to say that I understand that was a tough decision, but I'm really glad to hear that you felt you were well treated. By our company because that's really what we value so they really want to be able to look people in the eye with a clear conscience i think you know i just think that absolutely when, when there's when there's that personal connection between business and community between business and employees i just think that the the way that you think about these decisions is so much different than if you're sitting in a boardroom and you've got you're sort of feeling the pressure of, of the wall street analysts sort of on you know, breathing down your neck yeah. and there are these people you know that you're going to be judged based upon whether or not you meet the next quarter's earnings targets, almost irrespective of the consequence. I mean, of course, you know, and, and it's a business, as you said, you'll probably be gone from within a few years. It's just naturally, you're not going to be mm -hmm. as thinking about all these other trade-offs as if it's your name is on the door and these are people that have been, you know, that you'll see in the community and, and, and you'll be in this role for a long time or even if you're not in that, that role, you'll be associated with the business there's just a very different way of, of dealing with some of these some of these difficult trade-offs that businesses have had to make over the last year in particular. Now, when most people think about family-owned businesses, of course, they think about large businesses, right? But sure. their default filter is always to assume it's a little bit more smaller in size. So there's, yeah. I have two questions, and they're quite interesting. First one is that let's take an example like BMW, right, where the, there's a family that has a voting block of shares and they can call the shots, so to speak. Sure. Is that a family-owned business? Yeah, and this kind of gets into uh, you know debates about you know uh, is it one or the other. I mean, so my my view is that a family business is one where the family exercises what we we'll think of as ownership control, ownership which is the control. ability to as the ability to kind of make, take call those big shots. Like, mm -hmm. do we want to sell the company or keep it? Do we want to take it public or, or you know leave it private or take it private even, even when it's public. Um, you know, how are we going to make big decisions about dividends versus reinvesting in the business? Are there certain things that we won't do, even if they might make us more money? Or, or to take another car company, Volkswagen. They've yeah. made a huge bet on electric vehicles. And that's the kind of bet that I imagine the family is, is uh, you know, is behind that kind of a decision, maybe driving that kind of a yes. decision. So I would think of a company that where the family is exercising ownership control, whether that's through owning it 100% or whether it's through voting shares or through some other mechanism, that's I would think about that as a family business. So depending on how they're exercising their control, whether it's enough, they have their own siblings in there, whether they're on the board, whether they dominate the board, or whether they can veto and push through big decisions, the mechanisms to control and management obviously would be very different, right? Absolutely, and you see a whole range of things that you you know in some ways calling something a family business it can be a bit of a you know an unhelpful you know sort of blanket statement, yes. right? Because you just described, you've got everything from, we, it's a family business and we run it and yes. we're in the senior management position to a family business that we own it, but we've delegated control to management or even to the board or mm -hmm. somewhere in between where the family sits in a governance capacity, but doesn't operate it. Um, and it isn't just passive shareholders, not just sort of shareholders. So there's a wide range of ways. And that's actually something that I think is really important to emphasize because sometimes you get, especially when you're in that owner-operator kind yes. of mode, family business get trapped into believing either we need to keep doing that or we need yes. to sell it. When in fact, you can have a very successful family business where the family isn't running it. Maybe bringing an outside CEO to run it, but you could still own it, right? So there's, you want to get away from this sort of like, it's got to be this way or mm -hmm. that way. It can be all kinds of different ways. Yes. So looking at the survey, right, I noticed that certain countries dominate here with the results, Brazil, USA, UK, Canada, Colombia. Is yeah. that because, is that because Banyan has a big footprint in these areas or what drives that mix of, of survey results? Yeah, and honestly, that's it. Because we're not a professional survey company. Yes. Um, we basically, we did the first survey more than anything else because we were looking at this in unprecedented time and basically just saying, how can we help? Yes. And we have, you know, we have a good network of family businesses. And so we really sort of just said, share what you're doing 
and, and share that you're struggling so that you know that you know collectively that you're not alone yes. and that you get some good practical advice about how to navigate this pandemic. And then we did the follow up just to sort of get a sense as to how people were doing and managing it. So those are, you know, our, our business is, is sort of like, um, you know, oriented around the North America, US, Canada, and then we have an office in Brazil. We do a lot of work there. We also do a lot of work in, in Southeast Asia and the Middle East, but I would say, you know, our, our the survey really does reflect more of our concentration than, than anything else. But it is quite a diverse set of countries, right? I mean, it covers sure. the breadth from India to Albania. I even see Zimbabwe, India. <laughs> so you, so basically, you know, what's interesting is that you were dealing with clients in countries that that were operating under COVID-like conditions even before COVID came along. I mean, if you're running a business in Zimbabwe, it must be pretty tough. You know how to handle uncertainty and difficulty, right? So you've been advising yeah. clients in these difficult times and then clients in the United States go through this. It's not new for you helping clients go through turmoil. You know, most countries have been through, whether it's economic or political instability, they've learned those lessons. But even, you know, I, I think even co companies in the U.S., you know, the these economic recessions, whether it was the Great Recession or, yeah. you know, we work with some oil companies that they they still have scars from the late 80s, you know, kind of the that period of time. So I think if you're if you're in business long enough, you're going to deal with a, an economic crisis, probably some sort of political crisis or situation. You're going to deal with an industry or sectoral kind of downturn mm -hmm. or disruption. Um, those are just it, it's really just about, you know, it's not necessarily magical about family business. It's just that because they've tend to have been through these things before and the people that were through them as you said earlier are are still around like even if they're not the ceo anymore they're still there they're still able to offer their advice and perspective and counsel and support um and all those kinds of things so there is that just that that sense of, of memory that exists and is something that i think is a a valuable asset when you're going through tough times there's just a level of uh, just a level of calmness, you know, not to say it's still not incredibly stressful. It's been a really uh, difficult time, you know, for family business leaders like all leaders. But it doesn't necessarily feel as existential because you know that you've been through something before. And I certainly think that, you know, the first couple months of this were especially um, stressful because we had no idea what was mm -hmm. coming next. And after that, you know, I talked to a lot of family businesses that, you know, the beginning of the year, in the first, around the first survey and that kind of time, this was looking like to be like, you know, a horrible year and all those kinds of things. By the end of it, they actually, some of them had their best year ever, profitability-wise, yes. you know, because they were focusing on on cost control and paying attention to things that maybe they hadn't been paying attention to. Um, and, and therefore, their business, even though for some revenue was down, for some it was way up, um, but for some, for even though for those whose revenue was down, um, they were actually able to come through it in a very strong financial position. You know, we spoke about all the good things family businesses do sure. very well, but there's also mm. some things that, uh, as a result of being family-owned, they sometimes miss opportunities. I remember many years ago working when I was a partner, working on a merger situation, mm. and the the month it was announced that the patriarch had cancer, another mm -hmm. company launched a hostile takeover bid, and yes. I remember how personal the family took that attack. Yeah. and how they responded. And many years later, when I had the opportunity to serve that family, when you walk into their boardroom, they have a, a framed photo of that newspaper article when that hostile attack was launched. And they've never, ever, I mean, it's like over 10 years, they've never done any work with that other family. And I don't think they ever will. But they've lost many good opportunities because the people who launched the hostile bid are gone, right? Uh, new yeah. members of the families are in there. So, you know, on the one hand, institutional memory is a good thing. Sure. But it does have that yin and yang, right? There's a negative effect as well. And there needs to be that balance there. Oh, absolutely. And I think there are things, there are definitely things that family businesses aren't, you know, aren't good at. You know, I think whenever you're, you know, in a technology like, you know, winner takes all kind of moment where it's all about, you know, getting capital and growth as fast as you can. Um, I think those are things family businesses aren't great at. They certainly have their vulnerabilities, and, and you know that your example made me think of others that I've seen where, you know, people will see, you know, especially in these generational transitions, those are moments of vulnerability if they're yes. not really well planned for. That can be times when a family business can be attacked from from the outside or the inside. I've seen the inside too, where you get a a very ambitious uh, non-family CEO who sees conflict among the owners and sort of um, angles to buy them out at a discount price, kind of thing. Like so. Look, there, there are real 
there are real vulnerabilities that mm-hmm. family businesses have because, you know, unlike if you have a disagreement with, in a public company or not, you know, non-family business, there's a way to resolve it. There's ultimately there's someone in charge, whether it's the yes. CEO or the board. If you think about, you know, what happened at Uber, like, you know, ultimately like someone gets fired, uh, you know, the CEO gets fired, the founder, and then like he has to leave. And that's kind of the way it goes. Yeah. Whereas in the family business, these um, arguments don't get so easily settled. They can continue on. They can, they can go into, you know, into family Decades. gatherings and holidays. <laughs> yeah. and they can last for, yeah, exactly right. They, these things per, can persist forever. And as you've said, that can be something that can really close down, whether it's external partnership opportunities or I see family businesses more commonly that get stuck internally. And basically, they can't make any decisions, and the business stays static, which is a, a real risk. You know, it's it's declining share and all those kinds of things. And so, look, there are real vulnerabilities that I don't want to pr- make it think as though it's all it's all you know rainbows and, yeah. and unicorns. Like there are real dangers and risks out there for family businesses too. Fortunately, I think these mostly are things that you can work on and address. And there are some things that are actually hard for others to emulate. And that's my my fundamental belief is not that family businesses are inherently better than other kinds. It's instead that I think family businesses are particularly good or you know, and have a potential advantage on the things that are more important in today's competition than the competition of fifty mm-hmm. years ago or a hundred years ago, when it was mostly about about scale and, and resources and these you know large behemoths and everything. So I do think that in this environment, in most industries, most of the time, there is an opportunity for family businesses to build an advantage. But at the same time, if you don't work on this stuff, then there's no guarantee. And all these negative things can, can really come out and, and destroy a business well before its time. So you raised a very interesting point. You mentioned that previously, and I agree, there was this massive emphasis on growth scale, in yeah. economies of scale. But now we're moving away from that. What's driving the move away from that? Well, I mean, I think um, there's a whole series of just fundamental changes in the in sort of like the the economy mm-hmm. that I think have driven that. You know, for one of them is that you know we went through a, a historically unprecedented period of growth between sort of like the back end of the 19th century and, and sort of most of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. You know, in the U.S., it was like five six percent. We'll, we'll probably yeah. other than maybe this year, we won't hit that again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think you know instead of this, you know, there was. As we talked about, in times when the economy is growing gangbusters, then the lack of access to capital that family businesses have compared to others, they get that, the impact of that gets magnified, yes. right? I think we also, you know, these companies that, you know, it used to be that you had to control like the entirety of a value chain in order to be successful. The, the example I always find just hilarious is that when, when back in the 30s, 40s, you know, Ford Motor Company, when they wanted, you know, for their uh, for the seats in their cars, they actually had to like raise sheep and then they'd get the yes, wool and then build true. that, right? So you had to like build this like end-to-end yeah. company. And of course, that's not how we, we are successful. You can actually focus on something. And so capital and scale is not as important as some other things. And then I think, you know, it's just that we're living in a time where, you know, when you have a, a knowledge economy, um, employee engagement has become the most important, you know, a really important thing. Whereas employees might have been a bit more fungible before, or you you have them do rote tasks that don't require the same level of engagement, requires more process control. You have a time when, as I said, you've got these big um, social forces that are affecting companies like um, environment. You know, what, how are you doing on the environment? What's your supply chain like? How are you in diversity and inclusion? There's an expectation level that I think is greater because there's more competition. There's there's less. There's more of a need to cut through everything and, and sort of stand out and you know the research says that family businesses are more trusted than other kinds of companies so i think all just the way in which competition has changed um really brings to the fore some of these some of these things that have become really valuable and i also think on the flip side for public companies you know this whole short-termism has become endemic and i don't see it going away really anytime soon and that's really to me exacerbated some of the distinction and some of the value of of either private ownership or at least private control, where you have a family that has a control block of a of a public company and can therefore ignore some of the some of the pressures, not all, but some of the pressures that are coming from the market. It's very interesting, and it sounds. I don't know if this is a good example, but I think it is. Right, if you look at the Japanese market, for example, Japanese economy has not been growing much for the last fifteen twenty years. It's sure. minor growth at best. Yeah, but at best, yeah, the best. family-owned businesses are still finding ways to grow. 
by being creative, understanding market shifts and so on. So it's yeah. not as if they're growing because the market is growing. They're growing because they're looking for opportunities in the value chain. And I'm speaking Absolutely. to a head of a family business in Japan. And I t asked him this question, you know, so how do you grow if there's no market growth? Are you taking market share from someone else? He said, the market's not growing, but segments within the market are growing. Yes. Like there's more older people. That's a growing market yeah. in Japan. Absolutely. And he said that we're very happy when we read that, you know, China, South Korea are going through the same aging because now we're going to be start exporting signage with big text. So what yeah. you're saying is that yeah. family-owned businesses, they tend to be creative in finding opportunities. Because And as you said, really, really good at these niches, yes. right? Because, you know, if you're a public company, a niche is never good enough. Yes. You know, it's rare to say we're really good at this and that's enough, right? Because... Whenever you achieve something, the shareholders answer is, that was great. Now what's next? Yes. And in a family business, you can actually say, no, this is good. Now we can actually, let's be profitable. Let's take that money and do something else with it. Let's invest in other businesses. Let's, let's, let's be entrepreneurial in other ways. Let's, let, let's put it in private equity. Let's do other things, right? I mean, there's, no, there's nothing that forces you to kind of keep pushing the pedal and therefore destroying, you know, destroying the niche that you've got that's really wonderful. Some of those niches are huge, right? And very yes. profitable. So you're, you're not sort of forced to kind of abandon them in the service of, of some, you know, continually focused growth plan. And, you know, growth is necessary for a company to sustain itself, to retain its vitality. But an excessive focus on growth can actually be a detriment to that sustainability. Yeah, one thing that surprised me and impressed me with these Japanese companies, and I'm sure it applies to other countries as well, is, is that when they find a niche, and they know that niche is not going to grow, they continuously reinvent the value in the niche. So they yeah. pull more and more money out of the customers. And it's an incredible amount of focus on very mundane things that they do better. Yeah. And that's where the opportunity lies, right? Specialization. I agree. And those are things that you know, require patience, that mm -hmm. require you know, the depth of understanding, that tend to require um, long-term investments. Um, and, and I think those are, again, those are things that are just easier for family businesses to do. I was talking to one um, in my class. I had a great guest. Who I wish I could name. But anyway, yeah. he was talking about how um, in his business, they're a, a large multi-billion dollar company competing with mostly with public companies, mm -hmm. many of whom are, are bigger than theirs. But he just talks about how they're able to have like a 10-year plan on, on one of their new initiatives. And he said – there is no way you could get a 10 year plan. Yes. Like they basically said, we're, we're willing to lose money for the next nine years to yeah. get to 10 years of, of profitability and payback and it will pay off for 30 years after that, right? It's just a very, it's a very different kind of, of approach that I think is serve, is ability to not only to sustain these niches, but also to build them, right? To build them over time. It just, it takes that kind of time and energy to build up that level of confidence and trust and relationship really with customers. And that's something that um, I think family businesses just are demonstrated their ability to do that. It reminds me of the story of this um, Indian billionaire who I'm sure you know, uh, who went into telecoms and he pulled capital out of the old technology businesses like oil refinery and so on. And at the behest of his children, he went into telecoms at the lowest possible price and is willing to make the investment to blow up and open up the market. I mean, that's kind of a decision that when you're sitting to, with, with a board of directors and say, we're going to invest tens of billions of dollars right. in, in a capital-intensive industry, and we're willing to do this for five years until we see the return. I mean, that's an example where you gave earlier, a great example whereby there may be other investors involved, there may be powerful investors, but if the family is calling the big shots, exactly, that's a family-owned business, yeah. but the mechanism to do it may be different from, say, a $30 million or billion-dollar company. Well, and, and I love the idea of it's the next generation kind of pushing it. It's, yeah. that, it's that generational time horizon, right? It's sort of the contrast to the quarterly perspective to say, you know, we really want to be, we want to be around for a long time. There's this great story. There's a, a book that was written by um, one of the, a guy who studied Shell and how mm -hmm. they last for centuries. And he tells this story of, of uh, you know, these farmers living in South America. This is a long, you know, long time ago before yeah. the economy was, was more developed. They're potato farmers. And they sent these U.S. agricultural experts down to help them sort of improve their crop yields. And, and the U.S. guys, did their, they did their assessment. They did their recommendations yeah. and basically came back and said, look, okay, you've got all these different varietals of potatoes. Uh, just pick the one or two that are the most productive. 
and put all plant all your fields with those one or two, right? And then you'll up your crop yields by a huge percentage. And they said, okay, that's great, but there are certain years when those potatoes do really well, mm. and there are other years yeah. when these other ones do really well. And we might eat for really well for a few years, yeah. and then we'll starve for the years after that. And I actually see that same. You know, I think there's there's a lumber company that I've worked that, that I've worked with, and it's been around for well over a hundred years. And they take a similar approach. They could, you know, there's you know different different varietals of wood go through fashion. They they're in and out. You know, mahogany is really popular. Yes, and that's a very really good popular, point. Right? And you can, if all you're trying to do is maximize your profitability over one particular time horizon. You just pick the thing that gives you the highest profitability that's the most popular. You put all your time and energy behind that. You orient your company to it, and you make a lot of money, right? And then what happens when that thing's out of fashion? Well, your mm -hmm. company is no longer true. And if you're a public company, maybe you don't care because you sell to someone else or you, you go and work for someone else. But when it's your company and when you have this generational time horizon, you just think about these kinds of choices in a totally different way different way. I mean, that's maybe one of the best stories I've, I've ever heard to um, encapsulate sustainable strategy. Uh, most companies, when they develop a strategy, it's not meant to be sustainable. It's meant to make yeah. the management team look really good in four years and collect their golden package. Sure. And then they sure. leave, right? Thank yeah, you so absolutely. much, Joshua. Been such a pleasure speaking to you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.